Good morning, Cornerstone. It's such a relief to look at your faces instead of my, my phone and my study. It's, uh, it really is wonderful to have, to be all together here and to see your faces and to be, how are we going there? We are still on YouTube, so welcome to people who are on YouTube as well. And today we're looking at Psalm 130, so please open your Bibles to Psalm 130. And not just parents, but kids as well, open your Bibles or get mum and dad to show you Psalm 130, where we're thrilled you can be in our service and that you can hear God's word as well. This is for all of us. And we're looking at Psalm, this beautiful Psalm, Psalm 130 today. And you'll see right at the start there that this is called a song of ascents. And that, that, that's not the translators of the New International Version that have written it, that in there. That's actually part of the, the original. And so we are meant to know that this is a song of ascents. And scholars suggest that this is a song that worshippers may have sung as they ascended up through Jerusalem, ascended up to the temple to praise God. And I love that, that superscription, Song of Ascents, because it makes us look up, doesn't it? Look up. Look up and, and see the Lord. And I think of James and John and Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, looking up and seeing Jesus Christ, his face shining brighter than the sun. And that's what we are doing this morning, looking up to see the the face of our Lord and Saviour in this psalm. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths. You don't need to know the Hebrew to understand what the depths are, do you? This is a, a metaphor that, that transcends all cultures and all times. We all know what it means to be in the depths. To be in the pit, to be in a, a dark and black and lonely place. We all understand what the psalmist means when he says, I am crying out from the depths. And maybe you're here this morning and, and, and this resonates with you deeply. I know what it means to be in the depths. I'm in the depths now. Well, the, the Bible teaches us that when we are in that, that low place, we cry out to the Lord. The depths may take many different kinds. Well, may, there, there are many different kinds of depths, is what I meant to say. There are people who are in the depths of betrayal. Like Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers. And he was put in that pit, wasn't he, by his brothers. But it was even worse for him that he was cast away by his brothers, rejected by them. And he, he was in the depths of betrayal. And there are those in the Bible who are in the depths of loss. Think of, of Job. The way he lost his, his wealth, and then his family, his, his children, and then his very health was taken away from him. There are those who are in the, 
the depths of loss and, and pain. There are those in the depths of disability. Think of that man born blind in the Gospel of John. And everything was, was darkness, no light in his life. And there are those who are in the depths of overwhelming circumstances. Think of Israel at the front of the Red Sea. Behind them, Pharaoh and the Egyptian army in front of them, an impassable sea. And there they were in the, in the depths of despair. And everything seemed hopeless to them. There are those who are in the depths of disappointment. Think of Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And Saul had been king. And he, he was a terrible king. Arrogant and looked to his own strength. He didn't obey the Lord, didn't trust the Lord. And the depths of disappointment that Samuel felt. We, we read that he, he cried through the night for his disappointment for Samuel, for, for Saul, and for the way Saul had not been the king that he'd hoped he'd be. And those in the depths of loneliness, depression, think of Elijah after Mount Carmel and what happened on Mount Carmel and that 40-day that journey all on his own to the mountain. And there was this man in the depths of loneliness and depression. You know what it means to be in the depths. And every one of those examples I just gave, if you look at what the Word of God says, for every one of those examples, it was God who put those people in those depths. Yes, there were wicked people doing wicked things, but behind all that was the hand of a sovereign God who placed his people in the depths for a time. Please know that, that, that it may be the Lord who puts us in these, these dark places. And it is from the depths that we cry out to the Lord. Notice here that the, the psalmist doesn't scrabble and scramble out of the depths and get himself out of the depths and then cries out to the Lord. It's from the depths. It's from the pit. It's from that darkness and that disappointment and that despair that he cries out to God. God, God doesn't want you to to be in a, a high place, a strong place, a healthy place, before you turn to him. He says, the example here is, from the blackness, call out to him, wherever you are. That's when he wants to hear your voice. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And I find this very daring. That the psalmist refers to the ears of God. God's not a human being. He doesn't have body parts. But the psalmist dares to refer to the ears of God. God, listen to what I'm saying. There's passion, there's urgency here. 
And maybe that's you. You're in that dark place. Or you have been. Or you will be. We turn to God and we cry out to him. And we beg that he will listen, that he will give us his ears. Augustine said something very beautiful about that. He said, you know, the ears of God are in the heart of the person who calls out to him. In other words, God is listening and God hears what pours out from the hearts of his people. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? And here we see the real problem. The real problem is sin. It's it's sin in the world. It's the fall and the, the consequences of sin that bring us in to the pit, into that dark place. This is the, the root of the problem. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Just two days ago, I was listening to this extraordinary documentary on the radio about the man who pioneered the anti-venom for the taipan snake, which apparently is one of the most venomous snakes in Australia, if not the world. And they're found up in the cane fields, mainly in Queensland. And this is back in the 1930s. And this, this very brave man knew that if we're going to have an anti-venom for the taipan, then we need to catch one. And then we need to milk its venom. And then the scientists will use that venom to make an anti-venom. Because people were, were dying. People were getting bitten by these snakes and they were uh, suffocating and dying. And so this very brave man, he went up to Cairns and he put out an advertisement and he said, look, I, I need to get hold of a live taipan snake. And someone got in touch and they said, I think I know where one is. And so he drove to the place near a cane field and he heard a rat screaming in distress and he thought that's where the snake is going to be. And so he followed the sound of the, of the rat squealing and there's a sheet of iron and he lifted up the iron and there was a rat's nest and sure enough in the middle of the rat's nest a taipan snake. Kids, can you picture this? This, this taipan snake with a rat halfway down its mouth. And this man thought, this is my moment. How can the snake bite me when it's got a rat down its, its throat? So he, he grabbed the snake and the snake immediately regurgitated the rat so that it could bite the man and in its fear coiled itself around the man seven foot long. A seven foot taipan coiled itself around him. Now what do you do? You've got a taipan by the neck and it's coiled itself around your body. What on earth do you do? And so he, he, he couldn't get back in his car and drive. He walked out to the highway and he hitched. <laughs> because he, th he knew he couldn't drive. And he held out his hand and a man in a truck stopped and said, what the heck? <laughs> and this brave man, this brave truck, truck driver said, okay, Get in, and he's sitting there in the passenger seat holding a taipan snake, the deadliest snake in Australia, 
wrapped around his body and he drove to his friend's place who was a, a snake expert. This story does not have a happy ending, I'm sorry. It doesn't have, it doesn't have a happy ending because uh, when they went to put the snake in the bag, the snake got free and it bit him on the hand and he died. He died. But they used the snake to find an antivenom and other snakes after that. But uh, I was reflecting on this terrifying story and I thought, that, that, that's sin, isn't it? It, it, it? It's deadly and we feel like we've got a grip on it, but it, actually it's got a grip on us. It's got us. And it is something that, that, that kills us. It kills our souls. And, and the psalmist crying out from the depths, he knows that the real danger, what is really afflicting him, the most deadly thing is his sin. It's got itself wrapped around him. It's venomous, poisonous. It's going to be the death of him. And he cries out to God for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? God, if you, if you were the God who never let go of, of the record of someone's sins. So pic- picture what he's saying here. He's saying that we have sinned, there is a record of our sin. And if that record was retained, who could stand in the presence of a holy God? Who could stand upright in the presence of a righteous God with a record of their sins there? But there's that magnificent word, if, if you, Lord, kept the record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. The psalmist is crying out from the pit, and he knows that at the, the heart of his danger and distress is sin, and the record of his sin is standing there, and he faces judgment from a holy God. And he knows that God is a forgiving God. And God is a merciful God, and God loves to forgive us our sins, and he loves to deal with our sins. He loves to to lift up the record of our sins, to free us from the guilt and the power and the pollution of sin. I love that verse in Micah chapter 7. It's the second last verse in the book of Micah where the prophet Micah describes what God does with the sins of of his people, his people who turn from their sins and, and cry out to him for mercy. Micah says, you will again have compassion on us and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. That's what God does with the record of our sin. When we come to him in repentance and faith, he takes the record of our sin, he hurls it down and tramples it and picks it up and throws it into the depths of the sea, never to be seen, never again to be held against us.
He frees us from our sin and the record of our sin and the pollution of our sin. I'm so pleased to be here face to face with you because I love you and and, and it is so good to be with my church family. But it is especially good to be able to, to point you to a merciful God and a forgiving God and a God who erases our sin and who throws the record of our sin into the depths of the sea and who looks at us as though we're wearing the perfection and the righteousness of Christ because we are, by faith in Christ, we are wearing his perfection and righteousness. And he looks at you as your son, as his son, as his daughter, and he loves you and he's forgiven you. This is the merciful God that the psalmist cries out to from the depths. Now look at look at how he he cries out to God. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. And I, I, I mentioned this in my little sermon article in the corner post. You know, when I when I hear of think of waiting, I picture myself in the doctor's surgery. And it's just such dead time, isn't it? You're just, just there and you just feel like you're, you're wasting time. You, you, you busted your gut to get there on time. And, uh, I'm sorry to our wonderful doctors here. You know, I'm sure you're laughing with us. Uh, we, we go all out to get there and we're sitting there and we're on time. And, but the doctors got three or four other patients to look at before us. And so we find some magazine. It's 80 years old. It's, and, and, and we're just sitting there, uh, wasting our time. That's how I often think of waiting. But, but the, the waiting here, the waiting, it, it's an impatient waiting. It's an expectant waiting. It's, it, there's some urgency to this waiting. I wait for the Lord. It, it, it's the bride and groom on the night before their wedding. That, that expectation. It's the teenage boy and he can smell mum's roast in the oven and he's starving and there's that expectation and his mouth is watering and he can't wait. And, and this is the kind of waiting that, that, that's being talked about here. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. Literally my soul waits. Everything in me is turning to God with keen expectation. And in his word, I put my hope. And then there's this beautiful illustration here. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. And so picture the the, the guard on the walls of Jerusalem. And he's out there at, at night on the walls of Jerusalem and it's black and he's cold and he's hungry and he's wanting his bed and he wants something to eat and he's just longing for what? He's longing to see those first rays of dawn. 
when he knows that the watching and the waiting will be over. And the psalmist is saying, I cry out to God from the depths with that same kind of keen expectation. Like the watchman straining his eyes to the horizon, looking for the first rays of dawn. Or think of someone watching through the night who is unwell. And maybe you've had more than one night like that where you're in pain. And it's, it's the early hours and you're in pain and all you want is for the sun to come up so that you won't be in the blackness and the loneliness. You're waiting for the sun to come up and a friend to come and help you and to love you and to support you. It's that watching and waiting that is being described here in the psalm. Now, I looked at the psalm with someone this week and they said, uh, I think there might be a typo here in my my translation. What, what do you think they might have meant by that? Because it says, I wait for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning. And then it says it all over again. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And it's not a typo. It's heartfelt emphasis. He says it twice. That's how deeply he is watching and waiting for the Lord. And this is, this is the Christian life, isn't it? The Christian life is one of, of turning to God from the blackness, from the despair, from the sin, our own sin, the effects of sin, and we are waiting and we are longing for the Lord to come and to lift us up. And he does. He forgives us our sins. He doesn't keep a record of our sins. And and that's why our Lord Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is called by that, that beautiful metaphor, the morning star. He's the morning star. That light that we are looking for from the dark place. It is our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist finishes with an exhortation here. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. I I love that because what the psalmist is doing here is is his heart, his soul has been turned towards the Lord. He's, He's longing for the Lord and longing for the Lord's help. And now what does he do? He turns to his his brothers and his sisters, and he's saying, Israel, brothers, sisters, let's, let's all do this. Let's all turn to the Lord. Let's all put our hope in the Lord. And this is very much at the heart of the Christian faith. If we turn to the Lord and we know that he is a God who does not hold the record of our sins against us, is he, if he is the God who lifts us out of the pit, we can't help but to tell others around us. Put your hope in the Lord, Israel. My church, my brothers, my sisters, my mothers and fathers in the faith, 
my little brothers and sisters in the faith, Israel, put your hope in the Lord for with the Lord is unfailing love. One Hebrew word, chesed, which mean, it doesn't just mean love, it means loyal love, it means steadfast love, it means faithful love. Let, let, I, I know you've seen me do this before, but let me just give an illustration of loyal love. Luke, would you mind joining me for a moment? He, poor Luke, he just happened to be the closest person sitting here. And you will have seen the movie Ben-Hur, right? The old one with Charlton Heston, that's the... The only one worth watching. And you'll know how they shake hands in Ben-Hur, right? And it's, it's, it's not like, I've, I know I've just broken a whole, <laughs> I've just broken a law on YouTube uh, by shaking hands. But um, anyway, that's not how they used to shake hands. It's like that. Okay, let's do that. And it's, you know? And you hold the wrist of the other person. This is how... They shake hands and bend her. Now, what I love about this is, let go. Okay? Now, Luke's let go of me. I've not let go of him. Thanks, Luke. I'll let go of you now. Let you sit down. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> I won't have a knock on the door this afternoon. Abraham had the hand of God, didn't he? But Abraham let go, didn't he? When he lied about Sarah, he let go. And Isaac did the same thing. He had the hand of God, but he let go. And Jacob let go and deceived his own blind father. And Moses let go and struck the rock. And David let go and murdered his, his friend and committed adultery with his friend's wife. And God didn't let go. We let go. He doesn't. That is unfailing love. That's the unfailing love that is being described here. That although we are weak and we might let go of God, he never lets go of his people. With the Lord, Israel, Brothers, sisters, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. And you might let go of him, he will not let go of you. And he will carry you through, lift you up out of the pit. And his love is unrelenting, and it is unstoppable, and it will not stop until he has gathered you all together in the presence of his Son in glory for all eternity. With the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Our sins completely dealt with. The, the chains of sin completely broken. The record of sin completely destroyed. Full redemption. I hate that doctrine of purgatory. I hate it. Because it says that there's not full redemption. That when you die, you've got to go and suffer some more. It's not true. 
Bible says there's full redemption in Jesus Christ. There's not a single sin that Jesus Christ did not bear on his own shoulders for his people. Not one sin will you bear into the presence of God because he has borne them all. Full redemption. Not partial. Not to be completed by you or anyone else. He's done it all. And how it dishonours Christ to think that there's something that we can add to our his redeeming work. There's something more that we must do. He's done it all. Full redemption, O Israel, in Jesus Christ. For he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins.